In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the unknown and how fearful it can be. I can only hope you've come to our magic shop for some delightfully devilish spells and incantations. I'm afraid I can't offer you much else at this time. We've sold out of hand in sanitizer. That's the potion which causes your hands to go insane and people have stripped our shelves bare of toilet pepper. That's a spice you sprinkle in your toilet to make your butt sneeze. So listen, look after yourself out there. Wash your hands and give your immune system a boost by covering your ears with tiny speakers and listening to audio horror stories. Fortunately, those are in unlimited supply here at the No Sleep Magic Shop. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. In our first tale, we meet a library archivist with two passions. The first, of course, is books. And the second, well, it's true crime. That's why it's so fortuitous when her first love leads to an opportunity to pursue the second. But in this tale, shared with us by author T. Takato Wise, Our librarian finds out that pursuing true crime investigations isn't always the safest thing to do. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, David Alt, Nicole Goodnight, Graham Rowett, Jeff Clement, Peter Lewis, and Nicole Doolin. So if you find a business card in an old copy of Unethical Human Experimentation in the United States, then maybe leave it where it is because otherwise you might find yourself part of a test run. In late 2011, I fell down a rabbit hole and almost didn't make it back out. See... I've always had this unquenchable fascination with the unsolved and the unknown. Yes, I'm mystified by old legends and lore, but they never really held my attention for long. At least not in the same way that something else did. Something more sinister and believable and closer to home. Missing persons cases. At the time, I lived in the heart of Manhattan and worked as an archivist in one of the world's most famous libraries. 
I had spent my days appraising and preserving priceless old books and manuscripts, and my nights poring over internet threads about the latest discovery or clue or crime. I remember the day I first stumbled to the edge of the rabbit hole vividly. It was early October, gloomy, cold, and getting colder every day. I went up to the third floor of my building, introduced myself to Mikhail, the newest librarian for the Archives and Manuscript Division, then made my way to the back of the room where my office was. For hours, work went as planned. It wasn't until around four o'clock that something odd happened. I opened the door to my office to find a particular manuscript and heard a grunt. It sounded like someone lifting something heavy, followed by the unmistakable sound of a sliding shelf being pulled out. No appointments were scheduled in my division for that day. Mikael? There was no response, but I clearly heard a tinny sound that could have been a ringtone. Sounded slightly familiar, like an old game theme. There was a quick intake of breath, like someone being startled, then sharp footsteps hurrying towards the only exit. Intrigued and a little suspicious, I left my office and walked through the stacks when something caught my eye. Someone had indeed pulled out a retractable shelf and placed a book on it. There was nothing particularly interesting about the book itself. Heavy, dull brown, and slightly bloated from age. But the title, written in peeling gold Franklin Gothic font, made me pause. Unethical Human Experimentation in the United States. I walked over and picked it up, immediately noticing something stuck between its pages. I carefully flipped the book open and saw a matte black business card. On it, a quote was written in all capital letters in bright white ink. Man is the cruelest animal. I flipped the card over to see four more words. Adirondack Park. The Hollow. I knew the quote was from Nietzsche, and that Adirondack Park was a forest preserve up north. But the hollow was beyond me. And I especially didn't understand why someone would write any of those things together on a blank black business card, then stick it into an old book about human experimentation. A sound like someone plopping themselves into a chair startled me back to the present. I set the book back onto the retractable shelf and walked towards it, thinking I'd be able to tell off whoever had shoved that card so unceremoniously into one of my books only to find Mikael sitting at the front desk. What's up? Did you let anyone in here recently? He took a sip of coffee and nodded. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, cute tall guy in a suit. He came in like ten minutes ago. Why, did you see him? I held up the business card. This was in one of the books. The ink was fresh. It could have caused some real damage. Oh... Are you still here? No, I checked. There's no one in here except us. Huh. Must have left while I was getting this. He lifted his paper cup a fraction of an inch. Hey, is is his number on that card? Maybe I could give him a ring and, uh, reprimand him? He winked. I shook my head. No number, sorry. 
Did he say why he needed to view this collection? Did he schedule an appointment while I was working? Mikael frowned. No and no. But he did have a card of admission. From whom? Mikael shuffled some papers on his desk, then handed me a small piece of cardstock. One glance told me all I needed to know. The official insignia of the Federal Bureau of Investigation was stamped on one corner, and an unreadable signature was signed near the bottom. That's it? What? There's no reason on here, Mikael, and no name. Did you check his ID? Oh, no I didn't. Oops. I sighed. You're not supposed to leave the table while you're scheduled up here, Mikael. He threw me a semi-scathing, semi-worried look. Well, you were working in the back, so I figured it'd be fine. I was only gone for like three minutes. I needed a caffeine boost. Well, just let me know next time, okay? I don't mind watching the front desk. I just don't want anything to happen to these books. Mikael's face softened. I understand. I'm sorry. Hey, can I get you a tea or something as an apology? Nah. But what about lunch sometime next week? Ty? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in. Hey, you staying until close? Actually, I think I might call it a day. Oh. What? I don't know. It feels a little spooky in here, especially when you're the only one inside, you know? Yeah, I know. That night, I lay awake in bed for hours, unable to shut off my mind. Finally, around midnight, I got up and pulled a heavy, swollen brown book out of my work bag. I'm not proud. Taking materials out of the special collections wasn't very professional of me, but I was curious. I carefully flipped the book open to the page the card had marked. Chemical Experiments, Operation Top Hat. I started reading and felt my pulse quicken. In 1953, the United States Army officially adopted strict guidelines concerning the use of human subjects in biological, radiological, and chemical research and testing. These guidelines, which strongly echoed the Nuremberg Code, required that all projects involving humans be approved by the Secretary of the Army. Despite careful constraints, however, there remained a loophole. The guidelines did not actually define in detail what types of testing required approval, thus creating a gray area of selective compliance. I skimmed farther down. Though several experiments were submitted to the Secretary of the Army in 1953, and were later approved, one test in particular skirted this process. Operation Top Hat was deemed a field exercise by the U.S. Army and was conducted in September of that same year at the Fort McClellan Army Chemical School in Alabama. During this exercise, soldiers in the Chemical Corps were subjected to various chemical and biological weapons, including nerve agents and mustard gas, in an attempt to study contamination and decontamination. The personnel involved in these experiments were not volunteers, nor informed that any test was taking place. I took a deep breath 
then flicked carefully to the table of contents and read. 1. Pharmacological research. 2. Human radiation experiments. 3. Disease, pathogens, and biological warfare testing. 4. Chemical experiments. 5. Psychological and torture experiments. 6. Surgical experiments. 7. Other experimentation, testing, and research. 8. Academic and professional commentary. 9. Legal implications. 10. Policies enacted. A few of the chapters had subchapters containing things I'd heard about, like the Montauk Project. But mostly, they covered things that I couldn't even begin to imagine actually occurring. Sick, twisted, rotten, unspeakable things that no one should ever have to experience. Not even those our government has locked away to be forgotten about. I went into work late the next day. I had spent the night reading that book, horrified by what our government has done to its own citizens and soldiers. To say I was exhausted would be an understatement. Mikael was manning the front desk again. Hey, you feeling all right? What? Oh, yeah. Just couldn't sleep last night. Oh, I'm sorry. But I have some news. I've wanted to tell you this all day. That guy came back earlier, like three hours ago. Guy? Yeah, you know, the cute one. He was looking for this book about human ethics or something. He said he was reading it yesterday and got an urgent work call he couldn't ignore, so he marked his place thinking he'd be back later. He says he's so very sorry for doing that and he wasn't thinking straight. But hey, that solves the mystery of the card. Though there is another mystery. What? I couldn't find that book he was looking for. Maybe I wasn't looking in the right area? Oh, no. It was back in my office. I was checking it for damage. Ah, I didn't know if I was allowed to go back there or not. I appreciate that you didn't. I've got some delicate projects going on. Did you happen to get this, uh, cute guy's name? Chip. Oops. Uh, sorry. Uh, no, I didn't. I'm an idiot, but, uh... He smiled and waved a piece of ripped paper around. I did get his number. You know, in the, uh, in the event the book turned up somewhere. All right. I'll give him a call. Tell him the book is here and that he can have a look when I'm finished with it. I took the slip of paper with the number on it. Oh. Sorry. Just protocol when a book is being fixed. Truth was, I didn't really want any unprofessional calls happening in the name of my division. Back in my office, I quickly consulted my computer, then picked up my phone and called the number we had in the system. Hello, this is Victoria. How may I help you today? Victoria, hello. I was wondering if I could request some information. Certainly. What kind of information are you looking for? Sometime yesterday, one of your special agents used our facilities and didn't... Um... (laughs) Didn't quite follow our protocols. Actually, between you and me, I'm not exactly certain if the man was really an FBI agent 
or just impersonating one. Oh no, we definitely wouldn't want that. I'll see what I can do. May I have your name and zip code and the facility you work at? I told her. There was the sound of a keyboard on the other end. Miss Anita? Yes? Records show that there was indeed an agent at the location you mentioned. Oh. Well, would it be possible to get a name? Or a reason as to why he was here in the first place? I'm sorry, no. That information is classified and, unfortunately, requests for name checks must be submitted through the proper channels. Proper channels? Other federal agencies. Oh, I see. What I can do, though, is submit this report directly to your local field office and have the special agent in charge speak directly with this particular agent about following proper protocols when using your facility. No, that's all right. He didn't cause too much trouble. Are you certain? Yes. Thank you for all your help. Of course. Have a nice day. After Victoria's line disconnected, I picked up the bit of paper Mikael had so reluctantly given me, sighed, then dialed. It rang once, then went straight to a generic voicemail. Please leave your message. I left a brief message and hung up. I rubbed my forehead again, then glanced over at my work and sighed. I couldn't concentrate. I was on edge, jumpy. I pulled my laptop towards me, opened up Google, and typed in two words, Adirondack Park. Of course, that search turned up nothing nefarious, so I opened a new tab, went to the forum I frequented, and typed in the same two words. Instantly, several threads popped up. I clicked on the one with the most views, and went on from there until I found something promising. The thread in question was about cold cases across the country. I spent maybe 30 minutes scrolling through all the posts when I saw New York mentioned. I stopped and felt my blood run cold at what the poster said. A hiker, a young woman, had gone missing a few months prior. According to her mother, She'd left early one Saturday morning in late July with the intention of exploring the Adirondack Park. She was only supposed to be gone for a few hours, six tops, but she never came home that night. Her mother didn't immediately call the police, saying that she thought her daughter had just gone to a friend's house. Two days after her initial disappearance, the mother reported her missing. The cops canvassed the area and did a public news appearance, Afterwards, an elderly woman came forward and said she'd seen the young woman running alongside the road that Saturday evening while she was driving home. The hiker, the motorist said, was covered in blood and some kind of other substance. She said it was black and shiny, like oil. When pressed, the elderly woman said she didn't stop or call the police because she didn't think it was her business. There were no other leads or clues. The cops and state investigators searched the area to no avail. The woman was never seen or heard from again, and the case went cold. There were several children comments to this post. Most were just conjecture, well wishes, and exclamations of despair, but three in particular piqued my interest. 
one comment listed and linked a few other missing persons reports from that area, including two cops who'd gone to check it out some years prior to the young woman's vanishing, and vanished themselves. The second comment mentioned that Adirondack Park was closer to another, stranger place. They linked a New York Times article about a peculiar Adirondack hamlet seemingly lost in time. It described a place, referred to as the Hollow, that was supposedly inhabited by two large families. Despite the article implying that the Hollow wasn't as bad as urban legends made it out to be, the commenter insisted that one family who lived there had absorbed the other family, whatever that meant, then resorted to incest to keep their town alive. They also offered up some conjecture that they were witches or devil worshippers who ate human flesh and practiced black magic. But it was the third comment that really got my cogs turning. The commenter said they had once been part of the U.S. Army, but had been dishonorably discharged for going AWOL. After a long tirade about how messed up the army can be, they relayed an interesting story. They said that back during their time, the government was conducting all sorts of strange tests, not just on its soldiers, but its citizens as well. They said that the government was particularly interested in unique humans, such as twins, those who suffered from birth defects, or who might be inbred, to conduct various psychological, pharmacological, and chemical experiments on, and that they wouldn't be surprised if these sorts of experiments were still happening. Finally, they mentioned how the oil-like substance seen on the young woman seemed similar to a chemical or biological weapon the government was testing on him and his unit years ago. I closed my laptop and looked around my eyes falling on the torn bit of paper with the number strewn across it. Without thinking, I grabbed it and dialed, getting the voicemail yet again. Please leave your message. Hello, sorry to bother you again. This is Marianne Haneda from the Manuscript and Archives Division. I, uh, well, I hope I don't sound too presumptuous. But it's about that card you accidentally left in the book you were looking at the other day. I was wondering what you meant by it. Now, I know with your line of work, you probably can't tell me much, if anything at all. But I'm very... Um... Interested in true crime and the quest for justice and all that. And was wondering if you'd be interested in letting me interview you sometime? Is that even allowed? That's all. Have a nice evening. I hung up and immediately pinched my nose in embarrassment. What possessed me to do that, I'll never know. That night, yet again, I couldn't sleep. I had strange, fevered dreams of women covered in blood and soldiers wearing gas masks melting down to black goo. I woke up an hour before dawn with my mind made up. It was my only day off, and curiosity had gotten the better of me. I, stupidly, decided to take a trip up north to see what I could find. I regret that. I always will. It took nearly four hours to get up to the area I wanted to investigate. Rather than start with Adirondack Park, 
I pulled over about two miles from the hollow. I figured that since it was daytime, nothing bad would happen. I got out of my Subaru and started walking. After almost two hours of walking, I saw and heard nothing. I was just about to give up when, in the distance, I saw what looked like a person standing against a tree. I hesitated, then walked towards it, wary. But upon closer inspection, I realized it was just one of those plastic ponchos strung up across a branch. It seemed to be pointing to something. I walked in that direction and covered my mouth in horror. (gasps) My guess is that it was some sort of sick shrine. A deer's head, not yet fully rotted, was nailed halfway up the trunk of the tree. Beneath it lay a scattering of stacked antlers, some still covered with putrid velvet, and other things, decaying things, things that had once been alive. I covered my nose and mouth with my sweater and leaned closer. Something was moving inside a pile of leaves that had accumulated around the antlers and carrion. Against my better judgment, I knelt, picked up a stick, and began poking at it. Suddenly, something small, black, and bloody popped out, making this ungodly screeching noise. Shit! It was a cat, half dead and hissing. Someone had done a rough job of cutting off its ears and tail. Oh my god, you poor thing. What have they done to you? We've got to get you to a vet. I pulled out my phone and immediately saw that it had no service. Damn. I pulled off my sweater with the thought that I might be able to wrap the cat up and bring it back to an animal hospital. The cat yowled at me in pain or panic. It seemed to be protecting something. Something very recognizable. What's that you've got there? I squatted down, then recoiled in shock. (laughs) It was a severed human hand. The skin was decomposed, rank, and it looked like the cat had been gnawing on it. But that wasn't all. It was clutched tight in rigor mortis, around a string of silver and rust. I regret to say that morbid curiosity got the better of me. Despite knowing that I was alone, I glanced around, then reached forward to untangle it and blinked in surprise. They were military dog tags. Suddenly, a strange pop sounded out from behind me. I stood up and whipped around. The cat shrieked and wavered. Another pop, and the cat's eye exploded. I screamed and dropped my sweater. At least five more pops echoed around me before I realized what was happening. Someone, somewhere, was shooting a pellet gun at it. The cat keeled over sideways and lay very, very still. (laughs) Laughter erupted from the trees around me. 
It was at that exact moment I realized just how incomprehensibly stupid I'd been. Traveling all the way out here, alone, without telling anyone where I was going or for how long, under some mistaken belief I could solve a crime that'd gone cold long before I'd even heard about it. Who's there? Shosias. Who's there? A single whistle sounded to the left of me. I spun in the direction of it, my eyes wide and heart pounding. I didn't see anything through the trees. Another whistle sounded to my right, and I started to cry. They're gonna get ya. You better run, run, run. Whoever's there, stop. I'm calling the police. My husband knows I'm out here. You don't want to know what'll happen if we catch you. Nothing bad. We'll just cover you in sauce and eat you up. (laughs) There was more laughter and another pop. I felt something sting my thigh and screamed again. Pure adrenaline fueled me forward toward the direction of the road, allowing me to ignore the stabbing pain in my thigh. I ran and ran and ran. From behind me came the sounds of crashing and grunts. It sounded like whoever was chasing me was close and getting closer. I stumbled onto the road, prepared for the worst, expecting the worst. The noises had stopped abruptly. I fumbled with my keys, panicked, unlocked my door, jumped inside, then locked them again. Despite my distress, I noticed a black Ford with government plates was parked next to my Subaru. There was no one inside, and I didn't wait around to see who it belonged to. I reported what happened as soon as I got back to the city. The detectives who took my statement were grave and professional. I gave them the dog tags, hoping they'd be of help. I received a call from them not long after I left the station. Miss Haneda. Yes? We just wanted you to know that we'll be sharing what you told us with our liaison. Your liaison? A special agent with the FBI. He's been investigating some, uh, some happenings in our state. Unfortunately, he's been out in the field since yesterday, and we don't know when he'll be back. Otherwise, we'd have you speak directly to him. Oh. I wondered if it was the same guy Mikael had spoken with, then realized that there was almost certainly more than one FBI agent in the state of New York. Yes. Yes, of course. That's no problem at all. I just hope you catch these criminals. Were the dog tags any help? That's, uh, that's just the thing. What is? Look, this isn't, uh... Well, I'm not supposed to say anything, but... Seeing what you've been through, and the fact that we haven't turned up much so far, I guess I can tell you. Tell me what? Those dog tags weren't registered. They didn't belong to anyone. 
must have been a replica or something. And unfortunately, the hand we found was too decomposed to ID. Oh. Don't worry. We'll be in touch if we need anything else or find any other leads. A week or so after I was attacked and chased, the detectives brought me in and had me listen to a lineup of men repeat the same line over and over again, but none of them sounded like the two I'd heard that day in the woods, and I didn't want to erroneously press any charges. I asked about their liaison, but they just shook their heads and apologized, saying he was up to his neck with work and had stepped out of the department for a breather. After only a couple months... My case went cold. The police didn't discover any other leads, and there just wasn't enough evidence otherwise. The man Mikael interacted with never called me back. There was one thing, though. One little strange thing. About a month after I'd idiotically gone up to northern New York, a library specialist in my building came up to my office, carrying something I recognized my sweater. It smelled like it had been recently washed. When did you get this? Like an hour ago. I didn't bring it up right away because I went on lunch after. Who dropped it off? Some guy. He said it was yours and he was just returning it. She shrugged like she wasn't paid enough to care, then turned to walk away. Wait, tall guy wearing a suit? Tall, yeah, but he was wearing jeans and some metal band t-shirt. I think it was Slayer or Metallica or something. Why? Cute? What? I closed my eyes and repeated myself. Was he... cute? Oh, uh, I guess so. Objectively attractive. Yeah, if you're into that sort of thing. I thanked her and waited until the door to my office shut fully behind her before unfolding the sweater. There, tucked neatly inside, was a single matte black business card. On it, a quote and one word in white ink and all capital letters were written. That which does not kill us makes us stronger. I flipped the card over. Sorry. Now, I know a lot of you might suggest I call the number again, or go back up to that godforsaken forest. But honestly, and excuse my language, please, fuck that. I don't think I'll ever go up into those woods, or any woods, ever again. And I will never ever personally look into another cold case for as long as I live, no matter how deeply I've fallen into the rabbit hole. Life is too short to gamble. I've since retired from archival sciences and spent my days strolling around the city, keeping to myself. It's nice. It's peaceful. But most of all, it's safe. And to those of you thinking you figured out where this place is, and that it'd be fun to go up there and investigate yourselves, don't. 
When the specter of serial killings looms over your town, it can be hard to escape from, even when the killer's been long gone. Some people, though, choose to capitalize on the notoriety of a dark history and make sure it's never forgotten. In this tale, shared with us by author William Stewart, we meet the local newspaper editor who runs coverage of the story every year and the exhausted reporter he assigns to cover it. But this year, the story serves as more than just a ghoulish reminder of tragedy's past. For this tale, I join Mike Delgadio, Dan Zapula, and Mary Murphy. So remember, no matter how closed you think a case might be, there's always something else to dig up. Just hope that you don't become a victim yourself, especially around Sam Hain. The whole thing started as a curiosity piece, part of a week-long Halloween-themed series. It's the sort of maudlin stuff that serious journalists despise, but what we all end up doing so much more of than actual reporting. This is the stuff of small-town newspaper. Talk with an old lady whose cat was rescued by the fire department. Cover the ribbon-cutting at the new Chevron station. Interview old folks and ask them what it was like to grow old in this no-horse town in the middle of nowhere. But I digress. It was nearing Halloween and the boss wanted to report on some dark and mysterious things in our town's history. So I was handed three assignments. The first was the fire that destroyed the old courthouse way back in 1928. This was a huge deal back then as all the court records, sentences, fines, and judgments all went up in smoke one night. To this day, the cause of the fire remains unknown. I had the pleasure of meeting the town's oldest resident, Mrs. Kimmy Duggett, who is 97 years young this fall. She was seven years old at the time and claims to have been there to watch it burn. This was difficult to coalesce with the fact that archived accounts report that the fire started sometime in the middle of the night and that by the time anyone even knew there was a problem, the building had already been reduced to cinders and ash. But Miss Kimmy was a sweetheart, though, so... I didn't really care whether or not she was lying. The second assignment was an interview with Lawrence Thomas Griffith III to discuss the 44th year of the charity ball and auction at the Casey Hall. Griffith III is the owner of Griffith Motors, established 1948, our local car dealership. His grandfather, Griffith Sr., had come back from the war with a piece of shrapnel and a dream. He'd run a very successful dealership until his retirement in the mid-70s. His son, Griffith Jr., was a showman. He often appeared on radio and television to promote the dealership and anything else he had going on, which largely consisted of charity fundraisers. He was a beloved figure in the town who greatly improved his father's legacy and made his own not insignificant impact on the town's economy. The charity ball and auction are local traditions that people look forward to all year. Griffith III is a young, sad-faced, and serious man with little of his father's charisma or personality. While he's certainly pleasant to be around, it's obvious that the young man's heart is not in selling cars. If I had to guess, I think he'd prefer the big city and all its… flavor to the small town we inhabit, if you know what I mean. And three is an only child, so the entire family business rests on his shoulders. I personally don't see the dealership making it another five years. 
And that's the kind of life we lead. Small town, big gossip, old school. In spite of the internet, we still sell out our entire print run every week. We sometimes even have to print late editions. Kids still play in front yards here. The ladies gather at the salon to talk about whose teenagers are messing around with whose. And the Baptist Church's Spring Festival is the most anticipated event of the year. These are good, solid, salt-of-the-earth folks. It's the kind of place where just about anyone, well, anyone except Griffith III, would like to put down roots and live easy. Unless you were living here between 1998 and 2001. Then it was most definitely not one of those places. You see, in those years, the town was terrorized by a serial killer. Four total victims, all under the age of 10, snatched from their own bedrooms on Halloween night. There were never any signs of a break-in or struggle, and none of the victims were ever found. Making the situation even stranger was how the story ended. In 01, shortly after the fourth victim went missing, a local man by the name of Charles Lee Brooks walked into the police station and confessed to snatching, raping, and killing the children. He said he would cooperate fully and show where he'd hidden the bodies. He declined counsel and said he didn't even want a defense. He swore that he was guilty and needed to be punished. He also begged to be locked up. Unfortunately, the bodies were never recovered, nor were the confessions ever made. You see, once they had him all locked up, Mr. Brooks took a sheet and wrapped it around his neck and hanged himself from the bars. Should have been national news, but there was always a bigger, juicier story somewhere else. Even when the story took such an unusual turn, there was still wall-to-wall coverage of 9-11 on almost every channel. So the story was never picked up by the media. Locally, however, it was quite the sensation. Charles Brooks was a chronically unemployed alcoholic who lived on the outskirts of town. He did odd jobs and errands to make ends meet, and when he was in a rare dry spell, he made his money working on people's cars. Now, despite all his problems, Brooks was magical when it came to motors. He could rebuild an engine all by himself in an afternoon. The police concluded that that's why there were never any signs of a break-in. Brooks had simply copied his customer's house keys and let himself in. My third assignment for Halloween was to interview the officers who worked the case of the Sam Hain killer all those years ago. My boss, the ledger's editor and chief, S.L. Cypress, was the man who named the killer. He was not subtle about wanting to get famous, to contribute to national publications, to go on TV and all that. So he took extra steps to sensationalize the whole thing. The insensitive bastard even added jack-o'-lanterns and black cats to columns discussing the murders, even years after Brooks had died. To say that the people of this town are not fans of Halloween would be an understatement. The thing is, nobody ever came calling. National media didn't care about a year's solved case that never produced any details. It was simply a tragic tale in an otherwise uninteresting small town somewhere in America. Yet every five or ten years, Cypress would drop the assignment on one of his staff writers, making them pull out all the files and relive all the boring details. He'd rub his hands together excitedly and smile broadly. Team, it's been long enough. America needs to know about Sam Hain. He said it incorrectly. He said it incorrectly every time. For a man of words, this was like nails on a chalkboard. It was the sort of mistake that would see the red of a proofer's pen so quickly if it was written. But since it was spoken, our otherwise super strict boss man simply refused to correct it. 
He'd say it on the radio, too, whenever he was invited on to discuss local events or history. It's just a travesty that such a tragic event was just ignored. It's like nobody cared at all for the suffering of the people of a small town. People need to know what happened here. People need to know about Sam Hain. Now, to be fair, the story of Sam Hain did have plenty of mystery and intrigue, and his crimes could have certainly blown up alongside killers like Zodiac and Bundy. Four victims killed by a local, familiar personality and no bodies. It wasn't that it was boring in and of itself. It was that after writing the same damn article so many times over the years, nobody wanted to do it again. So Cypress assigned garden club and marching band and newlyweds with ironic names and damn near every other kind of fluff that we just despise. And damn it, if I didn't get stuck behind a train on the way to work that morning, so I got to the office with exactly one assignment left to choose up on the board. Sam Hain. Damn. SL wanted the angle of the story to be a 20th anniversary of the disappearance of the first victim, Kyle Walters. He wanted interviews with police and family members. The problem with that was that most of the people who were involved with Sam Hain just really don't want to relive that time of their lives. 20 years is a long time, but when you lose a child, those scars never heal and they never go away. SL didn't care. He wanted his story and he would have it. On his desk, Friday morning, where there would be hell to pay. Fair enough, I'd write his damn story. So I went to my desk and prepared to do a very simple Control-C, Control-V on the article I'd written two years before. I sat down and booted up my computer and dicked around on my phone while I waited for the desktop to come up. Checking Facebook, I discovered that Arnold Waller had died. The Sheriff Waller had been the face of law enforcement my entire life. In his brown uniform, hat, and boots, Waller was as much a symbol of this town as the water tower or the Little League Park. I went to school with his son. Frankie was one grade above me, but the school was so small that most everyone except for the very oldest and very youngest were friends. I posted a quick thoughts and prayers comment and stared at my computer screen. Sheriff Waller had been there that night that Brooks had come into the station. Was likely the one who called the ME when Brooks kicked it too. I picked up my phone again and reread the post. My father, Sheriff Arnold Waller, died this morning at home. He was 79. Funeral announcements forthcoming. Thank you for your concern and support. F. It wasn't much. Almost strikingly stark. And Frankie wasn't a guy known for brevity. Frankie liked to talk. I read and reread his post. Comments with broken heart and sad-faced emojis started rolling in. The whole town was going to be in mourning. Sheriff Waller was an institution. He'd been patrolling for most of everyone's lives. When he retired, he'd been with the department for 36 years. And Frankie adored his father. The two of them were practically inseparable, always hunting, fishing, going to games. Something didn't add up. Even though it was just Facebook, Frankie Waller was not one to elegize his father with a mere 23 words. I grabbed my keys and went straight to his house. Frankie's vintage Ford Galaxy was in the driveway and the garage was open when I arrived, but nobody answered the door. I called around and poked at the edges, deciding whether I wanted to just risk walking in. I was standing in the garage pondering the issue when Frankie opened the door and we startled each other. 
Jesus Christ, John! You scared the hell out of me! Frankie, I'm sorry. I, I rang the bell, but no one answered. I, uh... I, I saw your Facebook. I came by to see how you were holding up. He didn't look good. His normally jovial demeanor was gone. His dark hair was messy. He had about three days of beard. His skin was greasy, and he looked as if he hadn't showered in days. He narrowed his eyes at me and then looked at the ground. I, uh... I'm not feeling much like company, John. It's been a hard road to hoe the last few days. He went to the refrigerator and got a beer. He then cracked the tab and drank half of it in a single swallow. In all my life, I don't think I remember ever seeing Frankie drink a beer, what with his dad being the sheriff and all. The Wallers were pretty straight-laced. When we were young, Frankie only avoided earning the nickname Opie by being big enough to smash anyone who wanted to say it to his face. I'm not proud of the fact that we called him that behind his back anyway, and sometimes still do. But mean or not, it was accurate. Now, this impossibly and sometimes irritatingly upstanding man was drunk at nine in the morning. True, he was mourning his father, but there was something more. It's okay, Frank. I just wanted to offer my condolences. If there's anything you need, you let me know, all right? He looked at the floor again and nodded without saying anything. Okay, uh, I'll see you later, Frankie. John. Yeah? He tipped the can and drained the rest of the beer before tossing the can at the refrigerator. He then began to sob. <laughs> I, I need to... Oh, God. <laughs> what is it, Frank? Uh, I know you loved your dad. It's okay. We're all gonna miss him. It's not that... I... He swung his fist and put a hole in the sheetrock next to the refrigerator. I ducked instinctively, although I wasn't within reach of him. I stepped backward slightly. He staggered a bit and then caught his balance, then swayed. I... Son of a... I turned to see S.L. pass in his blue Lexus. He cruised slowly, looking straight ahead, and turned at the end of the street. Him... I looked at Frankie and to where the car had passed and back again. He, uh, hit you up for an interview or something? S.L. Cypress was known for being a bit brash and unsympathetic. He's definitely the kind of guy who would call a man on the day his father died and ask if he had any comments for the late edition. No, look, I... I, I have to talk to someone, but it can't be in your fucking paper, okay, John? I need to talk to a friend, and since none of them are around, I, I need to talk to you. We're friends, Frankie. You can tell me anything. Totally off the record. Off the record. I promise. He helped himself to another beer, then ushered me into the house. He took a look back over his shoulder, scanning the street for something, then closed the garage door and came inside as well. It was them, John. Cypress and my dad. Who was them? I don't know what you mean. Sam Hain. The murders. It wasn't that guy, uh, 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 Brooks. It was... He looked at the floor, glassy eyes, haunted, sad. S slow down, Frank. You're not making any sense. They... My dad. Last night, right before... He said he needed to confess something. We're not Catholic, but I offered to call a priest or a minister or something. He said it was too late for that, but that he couldn't go without telling someone. He stared at the floor in silence, thinking. 
His eyes went wide, then narrowed. He started and stopped several times before continuing. My dad, everyone's favorite guy, Mr. Law and Order. Turns out he was a... Fuck! He liked boys, okay? He was a closet freak. He'd go into town and I'd... I don't know, do whatever he did. I'd hire kids to... do things? Sam Cypress is his... partner. Cypress ran into Dad somewhere in the city, long time, years ago. Dad didn't know why Cypress was there, but he'd been caught cruising by the newspaper man. Dad begged Cypress not to tell anyone. He had a family and a career, and he'd lose it all if people found out. So Cypress and my father made a deal. Sam wouldn't say anything about Dad's dalliances. He'd keep a secret for him if he'd do him a favor in return. See, see, Sam liked kids too. But he didn't just screw him. He, he killed him. He did worse things than kill him, and my dad was investigating the, uh, disappearances. Sam promised my dad his secret was safe as long as he stopped looking for the missing kids. So he did. But Brooks confessed, walked right into the police station and- My dad killed Charles Brooks, John. He, he choked him out in his cell. Brooks never confessed to anything. Dad just found an easy mark that nobody liked to take the fall. A bit of work with the documents and he had an open and shut case, except for they never found the bodies. Cypress stopped snatching local children. Dad never knew if he just quit or went other places, but no more kids went missing. Brooks hung for it and life went on. My heart was beating hard in my chest. This was the story of the century. Local police complicit with a child killer? Off the record or not, the world had to know. I think Sam is going to try to kill me. He's driven by the house a few times today, but every time someone has been here. Look, Frank, I know this whole thing is hard to deal with, but if this is true, we need to tell people. We need to bring Sam to justice. No more secrets. John, you promised. I can't, I can't let people know what kind of a monster my father was, what he did, what he, what he didn't do. My family would be ruined. Frank, think of all the families that were ruined because of him. You can't let him get away with this. Frank stared at the floor and <laughs> sobbed. It was a long time before he finally nodded. Okay, go. Now. Before I change my mind. Good old Opie. I knew he couldn't just let this slide. His father may have been a pederast, but at least he raised his boy right. I took some more notes and then made my way outside and got back out to my car. I looked up and down the street, but there was no sign of Sam. Sam Hain. The bastard named himself. I drove home to work on my story in private. Tomorrow, Halloween, I would bring down the Sam Hain killer. I got home just as my wife Janice was packing our daughter into the car. You're home, Marilee. She clicked Michelle into her car seat. I walked over and gave her a peck on the cheek and then reached in and tousled the kid's hair. She giggled and reached for me. Well, Sheriff Waller passed away, and I've got a couple other assignments. With you guys at Nana and Papa's, the house will be quiet, and I might actually finish my assignments before the deadlines. She came around and gave me a hug and a kiss. Don't get too used to the empty house. We'll be home in the morning, 
And we're gonna want a lot of attention from Daddy when we do, okay? I kissed her back and smiled. I'll get as much done as I can tonight so we can play tomorrow, I promise. Janice got into the car and both waved as they pulled out of the driveway. Good. This would go a lot better without a toddler at my heels. Too much was at stake. I wrote my story, with Frankie Waller's confession as close to verbatim as I could get it. I also wrote the story I had intended to write to turn into SL when I got in. I needed to be quick and clever to switch the stories at the last second. That's when SL met me at the door and asked me to come into his office. Adrenaline pumping, I walked with him as he closed the door behind us. Did he know? What did he know? I think I saw you talking to Frank Waller at his home yesterday, yes? What did you talk about? Uh, nothing. I stopped by to give condolences for his father passing. He was already drunk. He's taken it pretty hard. Uh-huh. That's all? He didn't tell you anything else? What would he tell me? He was just sad and drunk. Why? You haven't read this morning's edition yet, have you? He pulled the folded paper from his pocket and handed it to me. There, on the cover, was Frankie's old car. On fire, in a field. What is this? Police found our friend Frankie with half his head missing. Drove his car all the way out to Mill Creek Road. Then, boom. 12 gauge. I stared at Cypress, choosing my next words very carefully. I don't know what to say. He was really broken up about his dad, but I didn't think he'd do anything like this. You never do, son. You never do. But you know what else? What's that? There was a box with five pairs of hands and five Halloween masks in the trunk of that old junker. They found... Seems as if old Sheriff Waller did some confessing to our friend Frank before he passed on. Told him something the boy just couldn't handle. The way his eyes bored into me, he knew that I knew something about him. Or at least, he knew that Frank had told me something. I tried to meet his gaze, but it was impossible. All I could do was stammer. Confess? To what? Hands? Whose hands? Sam smiled and sat on the edge of his desk. Well, the hands of the children, of course. Victims of our favorite local legend, Sam Hain. I didn't know what to do or what to say. Here was a man who had killed children for fun, who had successfully blackmailed a town sheriff for decades, and had probably just killed Frankie Waller. Well, I'll be damned. And here we thought it was Charles Brooks this whole time. What, were, were they in on it together? Sam narrowed his eyes. Caught off guard for a moment, he didn't say anything. So, given the new development, do you still want the story? He was silent a few seconds longer before his face softened and he answered, No, no, I'll take it from here. You get some rest, John. You look like you've seen a ghost. My phone began to ring. It was Janice. I pressed the call you back later button and put it back in my pocket. I was up working late on the story. You, you know, you said you wanted it on your desk by now. And I'm sure it was great, just like everything you write. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to call New York. They'll want to hear about Sam Hain this time. Why don't you go on home, John? You really need some rest. I silenced the ringer and held the phone in my hands, letting it vibrate as I slowly backed out of Sam's office. In fact, take a couple of days off. 
things are going to be quite busy around here pretty soon, and I want you rested and ready to jump right into the middle of it all. Spend it with your family. Take that lovely daughter of yours. Um, well, forgive me. Michelle. Yes, Michelle. My apologies. Take her out trick-or-treating. She's just so excited, isn't she? Uh, but she can't wait to put on her cute little blue fairy costume. Hell, just take the whole weekend. Something other than that whole conversation was terribly wrong. How would he know what color my kid's dress was? I didn't have time to finish the thought before my phone began to ring for the third time. Then all the pieces fell into place. I pushed the answer button. Hold on, Jen. One second. Then to Sam. You said the box had five pairs of hands. I did. Sam Hain only had four victims. Whose are the fifth pair? He smiled broadly. I can't even begin to suspect. Oh, so horrible. But I don't think it'll be long before we find out. Anyways, that's all for now. Happy Halloween, John. When someone's been missing in the depths of the Amazon rainforest for a year, it's fair to assume they might not be coming back. It's also fair to assume that you won't be receiving any correspondence from them dated before they went missing. But that's exactly what happens in this tale, shared with us by author Jasmine Isaacson. It's up to one woman to piece together the delayed text messages and finally work out what happened to her cousin. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson and David Alt. So always take care before you head off to explore uncharted territory. Pack well, bring everything you need, and watch that you don't come down with a case of jungle fever. My cousin Brent was, is, an anthropology PhD student at the University College of London. He was writing his thesis on uncontacted peoples across the world, specifically in South America. I think he'd been particularly focused on a small group of hunter-gatherers that hadn't had any contact with the outside world for nearly 300 years. He decided to do his fieldwork research on this particular group, and somehow he'd found somebody who would take him on. The university wasn't thrilled about sending him alone, so a few others went with him. One of them was, I think, a senior faculty member of the university, another an expert on South American wildlife, and then a journalist who wanted to get a first-hand account of the story. They were supposed to be gone for six weeks. One week in Rio to prepare and gather all supplies, one week for the journey to the location, two weeks with the tribe, and then allowing time for the journey back and final bits of research back in Rio. 
The flight to South America left Heathrow Airport in the evening of November the 23rd, 2017. They were due to depart from Rio de Janeiro on the 1st of December 2017 for a week's hike through the Amazon rainforest. The last anyone heard of Brent was a satellite phone call to his parents on the evening of the 15th of December 2017. The newspapers and media portrayed it as a tragic disappearance, almost akin to the vanishing of Amelia Earhart, and up until recently, I believed them. A couple of days ago, I started receiving WhatsApp messages to my phone from my cousin's number. I don't actually know when he sent them because I think the crappy reception made them all arrive out of order and I got them all in one go. I have no idea what's happened to my cousin. But I have to warn you, some of these messages are incredibly disturbing and I'm really frightened. One message received. 10.26am, 7th of December. 2018. Hey cuz, Rio's amazing, beautiful beaches and even more beautiful women. Uh, speaking of girls, how'd that date go? What was her name? Kylie? Kelly? Anyway, the trek starts tomorrow and I am so psyched. I'll keep you updated and send you pics. One message received. 11.15am, 7th of December, 2018. Hey cuz, we've just set off on the first leg of the journey. Oh, it's so hot here, definitely better than miserable old England. We're getting on a boat to take us pretty deep into the jungle where we'll make camp for the night. The other guys are all right, but I'm definitely the youngest and I guess they don't always take me seriously. One message received. 13.45pm, 7th of December, 2018. Day three of the hike. The jungle's pretty dense and the natural fauna is really something. It's beautiful up here though. I sent you a pic just like I promised. I transferred the photo from my phone and uploaded it onto the computer. It looks like it was taken from some kind of hill looking down. I'm not sure exactly where the expedition was headed, but that's pretty deep in the jungle. One message received. 13.30pm, 7th of December, 2018. Everyone else is asleep in their tents, and I just can't stop thinking. When we meet these people, we'll be the first researchers in the world to have actual documented evidence of their existence. I hope I'm not in too deep, or that they'll be scared off by our presence. If they move location, there's no way to know where they'll be. Two messages received. 13.50pm, 7th of December, 2018. Shit, I just heard something. Some kind of movement outside the tent. Maybe an animal? Although it didn't sound like it. Something definitely moved, though. I think it's gone now. The whole jungle just went silent. Like, really still. Fuck, the hairs on my neck are standing. It reminds me of when we were kids and stayed up late watching the Blair Witch Project until we were too scared to go to the loo. Good times, eh? I need to sleep now. Tomorrow's going to be a long day of hiking. One message received. 16.23pm, 7th of December, 2018. Hey, cuz. I don't even know if these messages are getting through to you or not, but I feel better when I talk to you. It's almost like you're here. I asked the other guys if they heard, well, whatever the fuck that was last night, but everyone just looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> Maybe I am. This jungle heat's insane. I almost miss cold Britannia. I'm the youngest of the group, so I guess that means they see me as the runt of the litter. 
Uh, they're pretty cool guys, though, but I know how you've always felt, cuz. Two messages received. 20.03pm, 7th of December, 2018. The jungle's getting really freaking dense and more difficult to cut through. And the wildlife's beautiful, though, so many scents and colours. Throughout the day, the monkeys almost sing to each other. I bet they're wondering who the hell these pale bipeds are walking through their home. Oh, I wish you could be here. A few hours ago, we saw a scarlet-banded barbet. It was so beautiful and graceful, flying over the tree lines. We all just stood there watching it for ages, mesmerised by its elegance. Yeah, it's another world over here. When you walk around and hear the leaves crunching beneath your feet and the sound of the jungle around you, I can almost imagine what it was like in the ancient times. <laughs> Listen to me getting sentimental. Maybe I am getting old. <laughs> Fuck. One of our guys, Stevenson, the journalist who joined us from Rio, well, he got bitten by a spider. A small bright red thing and now he's all sweaty and feverish. The bite looks disgusting. It's, it's inflamed and there's white goo coming out of it. We've got to get him to a hospital. Our wildlife expert, Cropper, said he'd never seen anything like it before. One message received. 20.25 p.m. 7th of December, 2018. There's a village a short walk away. We have to leave Stevenson with the villagers. Our guide, Gail, knows the locals, and he says he'll be safe there with them until help can get to him. Oh, I really hope he'll be okay. Makes you realise how unpredictable the jungle is. Two messages received. 21.57pm, 7th of December, 2018. We left Stevenson at the village and carried on. We've just made camp and everyone's really quiet. We're not far from our destination now, just a couple more days of dense jungle and then we'll be there. I want to be excited, but I'm still pretty shaken up. Night, cuz. Shit. I heard that noise again. That same noise from a few nights ago. Maybe it's just the trees, but it sounds like something huge moving. You know those Ent things from the Lord of the Rings? It's, it's a bit like that. Can you, can you hear it? In the message, I could hear Brent opening his tent, but the only other thing I could hear was distortion from the wind. It was cut off after a few seconds, and I assume he must have gone back to sleep. It seems like he was recording voice messages daily, I guess kind of like a diary for himself. I went to sleep shortly after listening to this last one, but I didn't sleep too well. I had these weird dreams about being lost in the jungle and followed by strange chanting. When I woke up in the morning, my phone had received a few more messages from my cousin. One message received. 06.55am, 8th of December, 2018. Stevenson died a few hours after we left the village. We got a satellite call from the anthropologist at the village. The poison worked fast and there was no way to save him. He'll be taken to the nearest hospital and then his family will be notified. We're reaching our destination tomorrow and I'm trying to focus on the end goal, but... Oh, it's fucking tragic. We've just got to carry on, not just for our sake, but for Stevenson as well. God damn it. One message received. 07.43am, 8th of December, 2018. I... I can't believe we're actually here. It's a lot more remote than I thought, but... 
Jesus, they're incredible. The village is really deep in the jungle and they live in small homesteads. Some of them are built up in the trees overlooking the jungle. The others are more simple and sometimes it's just a roof built on leaves supported by tree branches. Oh, I've got to write all of this down. They're a little afraid of us, but somehow Gail has been able to interpret their dialect and from what I can understand, I think they know we mean no harm. One message received. 09.22 a.m. 8th of December, 2018. Hi, Cuz. Sorry for the lack of messages for the past few days. It's been pretty full on here. We're following the villagers every day, learning their daily routine, and they're getting used to us. I have so much material for my thesis. There's a lot of similarities between them and other indigenous groups, but also many differences. For one thing, there's barely any children around. I've seen maybe five kids under the age of six, which is unusual for this region. I can't wait to tell you all about it when I come home. One message received. 09.53 a.m. 8th of December, 2018. I know why there aren't any children here. Earlier on, I was walking with Kirby. He's the senior faculty member from the university. I stumbled on something hard and fell over into a sort of man-made ditch. When Kirby helped me up, I saw what I'd stumbled on. A small skull with huge, empty orbits. There were several more in the ditch where I'd fallen. I knew it before Gale later confirmed it and vomited before I could reply. They eat the children when they're young. I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, cannibalism isn't unheard of, but it is rare. I also don't know why some of the children have been spared, but maybe it'll become more apparent. Two messages received. 11am, 8th of December, 2018. I think Cropper might have gotten lost. He said he was going to check out the local area and take some photos about an hour ago, and he's not come back. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. This isn't his first trek in a remote area, but it's getting dark soon and, well, there's safety in numbers, as they say. Cropper still isn't back, and if he's still missing by morning, we're going out looking for him. Uh, maybe I'm just paranoid, but I don't know. There's something really weird about this place. One message received. 11.27am, 8th of December, 2018. Kirby woke me up a while ago, told me to come with him and that there was something I needed to see. We walked out of the village and now we're hiding behind some bushes. It's really bizarre. The villagers are all standing in one line and staring into nothing. It's, it's like they're in some sort of strange trance. Shit, somebody just moved. I can feel it beneath my feet. Fuck, we've got to get back to the campsite. There's a few more seconds of noise, which is just the sound of my cousin running through the jungle, panting heavily, and then it cuts out. I did catch something of rumbling noise, just like my cousin described in one of the previous messages, but it's impossible to tell exactly what it is. One message received. 12.15pm, 8th of December, 2018. It's been two days and Cropper isn't back yet, so there's just me and Kirby. My battery's running lower and I've used up my last portable charger. 
We're thinking of heading back earlier because we don't feel safe. Something's out here. We don't really talk about it, but we can both feel it. We're still spending our days observing the villagers, but after that weird incident in the jungle, it, it doesn't feel right. I'm scared, but I'm going to use the satellite phone to call my parents later. It'll be good to hear their voices again. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I miss rainy old England. One message received. 101 p.m. 8th of December, 2018. Cropper's dead. Holy fuck, he's... He's dead. We found his body an hour ago. There were no signs of injuries or anything. He was just stone cold and turned grey. Gail is freaking out and Kirby has decided that we're going to leave tomorrow. There's, there's no point in leaving in the middle of the night, but at first light we are going back to civilization. Gail nearly left without us, but we convinced him to stay because without a guide we are fucked. Oh shit, what in the holy hell is going on here? These next two messages were really difficult to listen to. Brent was whispering like he was hiding from something, but he was also hysterical and crying. I've never known my cousin to show fear, and his cocky attitude always got him into trouble as a kid. Something really scared him out there. Two messages received. 1.37pm, 8th of December, 2018. I woke up, I woke up half an hour ago and decided to get some fr fresh air. I, 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 went, I went to see if Kirby was around because normally you can hear him snoring from miles away, but I haven't seen him. God. <laughs> what if he's dead? What, what if he's dead too? I should never have come on this expedition. I, I'm, I'm sure he'd be fine, mate. Maybe he's just making sure everything is safe. I, I, I don't need to try and get some sleep again. I haven't been able to sleep. I am so fucking scared right now. The villagers have been standing around in our campsite for nearly 45 minutes. They're not doing anything. They're just staring. I heard that same rumbling noise from before, and Kirby isn't back yet. I don't know where Gale is. I just want to get out of here. Maybe I can try and make a run for it. It's, it's not long before dawn. The next few messages were just strange rumbling noises, some sort of inhuman moaning. My cousin must have pressed record while he was running through the jungle. One message received. 1.49pm, 8th of December, 2018. Fuck! 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 Not Kirby! Oh, God! It's everywhere! One message received. 1.56pm, 8th of December, 2018. Stop for breath. That was the last message I received from my cousin's phone. From what I've been able to understand from his recordings, all of this took place within the first ten days or so of staying in the village. I have no idea what happened except nobody was able to find the other expedition members or the location of the indigenous peoples. The strange thing is, I know these messages I received have been delayed because I got them all in one go. It's been two days since the messages stopped, but my phone just beeped and I have a new notification for a WhatsApp voice message. One message received. 11.45am, 10th of December, 2018. It knows I'm here. I'm scared. 
Young men often want to take after their fathers. And that's the case with Francis, who has long dreamed of becoming a crabber in Alaska like his dear old dad. The problem is, his dad flat out refuses to take him out on any expeditions. But in this tale, shared with us by author S.H. Cooper, Francis finally discovers a way to convince his father to take him crabbing. The problem is, sometimes dad knows best, and what might seem like a dream job can easily become a nightmare. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Graham Rowett, Aaron Lillis, Mike Delgadio, Kyle Akers, and Jeff Clement. So get on board and head out onto the wide sea, but beware of what lurks out there, especially if you're sailing aboard Calhoun's Folly. It snows at sea. Sometimes I forget that. Or I try to anyway. Frozen wide on an endless field of black. It feels alien out there when it's snowing. Maybe I'd feel differently if it hadn't been snowing that night. But it was. And I don't. And I'll never know otherwise. Dad was a crabber. A real man's man. Exactly the type you'd expect to find in some tiny Alaskan town. He captained a 60-foot ship that disappeared out to sea for weeks at a time. He'd be gone for most of October, and then January, and we tried not to spend most of the time waiting by the window. It was rough work, dangerous, and more than one man was lost every year. Not Dad, though. He always came home. From a young age, I wanted to follow in his footsteps, grow the bushy beard, earn the wind-worn skin, carry myself with the rolling steps of a man with sea legs. Dad refused. You're better than this, smarter. This town is for folks like me, son, not like you. But I didn't want to be better, and I certainly didn't feel smarter. I wanted to be like Dad. We lived comfortably, and everything he did just seemed so cool. So every season I'd beg and plead to go out with him, just to see what it was like. Dangerous, cold, wet, miserable. He could be a grim man, my father. I also worked on my mom and my three uncles, his deckhands who had been on his crew since he'd gotten his own boat. Sometimes there was a fourth, but that was rare and I'd never met any of them. Your father said no, mom would say. Sorry, kiddo, my uncles would say. I only took it for so long. When I was 17, I put my foot down at dinner one night shortly before October. I'm going with you. I know how to clean the cages. I can help haul and sort. I won't get in the way. Dad regarded me with a stone face, his fork and knife clutched in his hands. Finally, he sat back. His expression didn't change. You know how many men go out there every season, boy? Yeah, I think so. You know how many come home? Edward. Mom tried to cut in, but he kept staring at me. Well, 
A man a week is lost out there, or so they say. Seems about right by my count. Yeah, but you always come back. And Benny, Levi and Dom. But not Carl or Sergei or Christopher. And those were just my boat in the last decade. Go ask any of the other captains, they'll tell you the same. The water is unforgiving. One mistake and you're gone. Edward, please. Not at the dinner table. The boy wants to go, Clara. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. If you don't let me, I'll just sign on with one of the other crews. I'd done it. Played my final hand. The threat I'd been holding on to for just this moment. Mom paled and looked pleadingly at Dad. She was always the worrying kind. Dad tugged the end of his beard sharply, an unhappy, angry gesture. No one will sign a greenhorn like you. They will. They'll see my name, know I'm your son, and they'll take me on. I said the words exactly as I'd rehearsed them in my head for so long. Dad dismissed me from dinner then. When I tried to argue, he slammed his fist on the table, making our silverware jump. There would be no more talk. I shoved my chair back and stalked to my room, where I left the door open a crack and waited. You can't take him, Edward. I know. You have to tell the others. Spread the word. No one can take him on. Not our Frank. He's determined, Clara. You know what's out there. I know. Edward? Better he's with me. Better he learn now. There were footsteps, and a door slammed. And I smiled. I'd won. In the few weeks remaining before the season opened, Dad taught me all he could. We went over processes and procedures, everyone's roles on the boat, and what would be expected of me. I was signed out of school, as were many boys my age, and I shadowed Dad everywhere he went. Mom sulked around the house, watching us with hooded, haunted eyes. I'll be fine. She just hugged me in return. The morning of our departure arrived, and Mom clung to me and cried. You be safe, Francis. I will, Mom. You bring my boy back to me, Edward Calhoun. Mom twisted her hands in the front of Dad's wool sweater. He kissed her forehead, whispered something, and we were off. The boat, Calhoun's Folly, was moored among a hundred others like it. We were the first of our crew to arrive, and Dad let me around to start preparing. My uncle showed up not long after. They clapped my shoulder and congratulated me on breaking my old man down, but I caught the curious, concerned looks they shot Dad out of the corner of their eyes. David was the last to arrive. He was a young man, a greenie like me. Even still... He looked at ease crossing the deck toward us, and I felt a stab of envy. I hired him before you pulled your stunt. We stowed our belongings in the quarters below, finalized the departure checklist, and we were off. The shore faded into a heavy mist behind us, and the sea opened up, gray water against a gray sky. The salt spray was like icicles against my skin, and I huddled against it in my parka. It was, as Dad had said, cold, wet, and miserable. I loved it. It snowed that first night, 
I watched the tiny flecks of white pass my porthole window in the spotlight Dad kept on to mark us. It was the first time I'd seen snow at sea. It was short-lived, a flurry, and I crept up on deck when it was done to see how much had collected on the boat. I was surprised to find Dad standing in the bow. His back was to me. His gloved hands clutched the rail. He was staring outward into the darkness. There was something about his posture, a rigidness that kept me quiet. I didn't know what he was looking at. It didn't feel right to ask. He was very still, even against the unrelenting icy winds. After a moment, I turned around and slunk away again. Something told me it was best to leave him be. This strange nighttime behavior continued. During the day, it was business as usual, but at night, Dad would go up on deck after everyone else had gone to bed and stare out to sea. I wanted to ask him about it, but he was less my father out there and more my captain. So I went to see my Uncle Benny. Let it be, Frankie. Some things are better left alone. He tried to keep his tone light, but... There was a strange note to it. Not quite ominous, but not quite far off either. My other uncles who'd overheard just nodded along and returned to their work. David, the other greenhorn, knew better than to ask questions. For two weeks, we sought out the spots Dad felt would be best for finding crabs. My hands had grown dry and cracked. My lips were chapped. My skin felt rough and always cold. I pulled my weight, though, and was out beside the others every day for however many hours were needed. David and I got along well, despite my previous jealousy. He was good company when I wanted someone closer to my age to talk to. Sometimes we'd see other crabbing boats, but the sea was otherwise an empty, barren place. And Dad... It was getting stranger. His nighttime vigils had turned to prowls. Up and down the deck, bowed astern, his hands clenched into fists at his sides. Sometimes he'd pause, stare over the side, and mutter to himself. The snow seemed to be getting heavier every night. I was beginning to worry about him, but I told myself that this must be his way. My uncles weren't bothered after all. He was probably concerned about our haul, the weather, his crew. He was the captain. It was his job. We were truly out in the middle of nowhere the night it happened. We hadn't seen another vessel in days. Dad had become quieter. My uncles more somber. Only David seemed to remain the same. We had become friends and were in the cabin, playing cards. When the others came in... We mumbled our hellos, but barely looked up. Benny and Levi stood behind David, one on each side. Dom had stayed by the door. I only looked up when I heard Dad inhale, slow and deep. He nodded once. David was pulled to his feet. He looked at my uncles holding his arms, and then at Dad. I'll never forget that uncertain smile on his face. What are you doing? Dad motioned for them to follow him, and Dom held the door open. I started to stand. 
Dad? Stay here, Frank. He didn't meet my eyes. He walked out, and David, who'd started to struggle, was dragged after him. Hey! Hey, what the hell? I scrambled after them, onto the deck, where a thick blanket of snow had built up. Benny rested a hand on my shoulder and gave it a squeeze. When I tried to shake him off, his grip tightened. Easy. Dad! He ignored me. David cried out, demanding again to know what was going on while he was half-carried in front of my father. They were standing beside the railing. Waves lapped hungrily against the folly's side. Snow continued to fall in fat, heavy flakes. Forgive me, son. He placed his hand on the back of David's neck, and the other two released him. David relaxed slightly, like he thought this was some kind of joke. What's going on, Captain? The words had barely left David's mouth before my dad shoved him as hard as he could over the railing. David's surprised, frightened scream ripped through the night and followed him into the water. No! I tried to lunge forward, but Benny held me in place. From below, there was coughing and sputtering, an attempt to shout through a throat frozen over. Dad stayed at the railing, staring down. His face was blank, expressionless. I shook Benny off and slid across the deck to slam into the railing. Dad caught me roughly by the collar before I toppled over it. There was no sign of David. Only bloodless white faces. Dozens of them all around us, staring up from beneath the waves. Their eye sockets were empty. Their mouths opened into furious, silent screams. The wind had picked up. It whipped around us in a wild frenzy. The snow was falling harder, obscuring all but those terrible faces. I wrenched my gaze from them and turned to Dad. I tried to speak, to ask what was going on, but nothing came out. Dad was jerking his head back and forth as if in denial. He leaned over the railing and shouted down at the faces. I gave you yours! I did what had to be done! The snow gave way to small, sharp hailstones. They fell like jagged marbles against the folly as Dad yelled into the black water. I did my part! What more do you want? My uncles were backing slowly toward the cabin door. The color had gone from their faces and they were trembling. I pulled at Dad's arm, trying to get him to follow, to explain what was going on to me. The wind howled its response. Blood for blood. Dad gaped, open-mouthed and horrified down at the faces. They twisted, still furious, but they appeared to be laughing now. I'd become a child again, afraid and uncomprehending. Blood rushed in my ears, my stomach rolled violently. I wanted to scream and beg my father to make the ugly, bloated faces go away. I held onto his arm, my fingers digging into the thick sleeve of his coat. I barely heard Dad over the roar of the wind and the waves. No! Not my boy! Blood for blood! Dad looked at me, 
He searched my face. His expression was lost. He pulled me into a tight hug, and then, before I had had a chance to get my arms around him, he shoved me backwards. Uncle Dom caught me. The last I saw of my father was him climbing over the railing of the boat. He swung his leg over and glanced back. Our eyes met, and then he let go. The wind died down. The hail slowed and then stopped. The sea calmed. And when I ran to the railing and looked over, my father and all those faces were gone. It was a long trawl back to port. I was despondent for most of it, lying in my bunk. My uncles took turns keeping me company. It was Benny who explained. Our land hadn't always been ours. Before the first European settlers, it had belonged to the Inuit people. They had been fishermen, like us, and mastered the craft long before any outsiders arrived. When the first settlers started to appear, they formed a truce with the Inuit. They aided each other, taught one another their various skills, and attempted to live side by side. It lasted until crabbing became a lucrative trade. The natives knew the best spots and had time-honored skills, while the settlers struggled. They convinced the Inuit to teach them, promising to share the wealth that the crabs were sure to bring to the community. For a time, it worked well enough, but greed has a way of taking hold. The settlers wanted more, more land for their growing families, more sea to hunt in, more money. The Inuit demanded their fair share, though. After all, they taught these outsiders everything they knew. The settlers swore they'd make things right. They invited the Inuit to join them on their larger boats for the final hunt of the season. They called it a peacemaking venture. Most of the able-bodied men joined the settlers, believing in their goodwill. None of them returned. The remaining tribespeople were driven from the area under threat of death. With little in the way of protection, they were forced to flee. In their wake of loss and tears, something stirred from the land. Something ancient and angry. Blood for blood. Every year, a sacrifice must be made by the fishermen to make reparations for the blight they brought upon the peace of the land. If it's ignored, tragedy will befall the town built on the ruins of the Inuit village. During years that they attempted to ignore the curse, disease and fire swept through the town. Every captain knows it. Every deckhand knows it. The Greenhorns don't. Hundreds of men come in droves to Alaska every year to try and make their fortune off of crabbing. It's a cold, wet, and miserable job. Dangerous. No one is surprised when a few don't make it back. They take turns, I learned. Every year, the captains rotate. They take one or two new men on, take them out on the open sea, and then... They offer them up. 
They know the time is right when the snow falls hardest. There's a reason most don't sign on their children. Blood for blood. Love is the ultimate sacrifice. It was my father's turn that year. He'd hoped if he treated me the same as any other crew member, kept his distance, I'd be spared. He thought they wouldn't know. Mom begged him not to take me, but he couldn't trust that another captain wouldn't throw me over. He'd promised her I'd make it home. He kept that promise. I never went on another boat. I left home shortly after, moved far away from the ocean and the cold. They follow me, though. Even now. Those awful, pale faces. The pain and the torment they endure. The pain and the torment they cause. I dream of snow, of frozen white on an endless black field, and I see them all. And in the middle of them, a familiar face, weather-worn behind its bushy beard, screams up at me from beneath the rolling waves. In our final tale, we visit a town in which hauntings are commonplace. If you're a resident of Magazine, then ghosts are an everyday occurrence. The folks living there have had to become acclimatized to it. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ashley McKinley, when teenager Michael's family comes under attack from a particularly malevolent poltergeist, he's forced to seek help. And that help comes in the form of a girl who's rumored to be able to banish spirits for good. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Mary Murphy, Addison Peacock, Jesse Cornett, Nicole Doolin, Mike Delgadio, Matthew Bradford, Jessica McAvoy, and Jeff Clement. So if there's something strange in your neighborhood and you find yourself wondering who you're going to call, well, it's simple. Just call Amy. I heard about Amy on my 16th birthday. I was out with some friends bowling in Fort Smith, about an hour away from Magazine. It was Saturday night teen night. Strobe lights lit the main rooms and black lights lit the alleys. A mix of hip-hop and pop rock roared over the speakers. I heard her name for the first time from my friend Dawn over the crack of the balls on pins. Have you heard about Amy, the girl who makes the ghost go away? That caught my interest. What do you mean makes them go away? Don grabbed a bowling ball and walked towards the alley, still facing us. 
She just walks up and they disappear and stay gone. Well, so far, anyways. Lily, the girl I'd been trying to get with, scooted closer to me. Her breath was hot against my ear. It's like she commands them. Can you believe that? You've seen her in action. Lily shook her head. Brother Hank took her out to Schraber's farm. Their poltergeist showed up as usual, but after only a few minutes of Amy being there, it was gone. Don got down to a 7-10 split and came back for his ball. They took her over to Laurel's curve. Laurel hasn't been seen since. Laurel was a lady in white. She hadn't hurt anyone since I'd been born, but legend said she lured drivers to her aid and killed anyone she deemed impure. If you saw her, you just didn't stop. I saw her on a weekly basis, but I never felt anything menacing from her. I assumed that made me pure. To think I would never see her again was a little disheartening. Are they going to try to use her to get rid of them all? I mean, what if they don't even really stay gone? Lily shrugged. I guess we'll see. And we did see. Over the course of six months, Amy was called out to ten different locations of regular haunts and was present for one exorcism. None of those entities had been seen since. Unwanted ghosts? No problem. Amy can expel them. Daughter possessed by the Legion? Don't worry, just call Amy. What a joke. Amy was 13. I hadn't seen her because of the age difference. And her guardians, Brother Hank and Sister Rhonda Weaver, were the heads of the Baptist Church. We went to the assembly across town. They homeschooled her, shrouding her in even more mystery. Everyone wanted to know, how did she do it? The Weavers called her a gift from God, but my 16-year-old mind wasn't satisfied. Not until I met her. I wish I'd never met her. I went into my sister Sierra's room one Saturday afternoon to get my headphones back. Walking out, I noticed her closet door creak open. I wasn't scared, just more curious as to why this was happening and what it was. I had my crucifix, had my salt, and I had my iron. I was prepared to investigate. I crept over to the closet door, the floorboards groaning beneath my feet. My ears started ringing and a cold sweat round on my back physiological responses I knew to be my spidey sense for haunts. Can I help you? I didn't attempt to open the door more, I just listened. I heard the ceiling fan and AC unit running, heard the TV on in the other room, an episode of Vampire Diaries, and I knew my sister was fast asleep in front of it. I listened for a breath, a whisper, a growl, something. What I got... I wasn't prepared for. At first it sounded far away, but grew, accompanied by something heavy and metallic scraping the wooden floor. My mind reeled through the catalog of ghosts I'd collected information on, trying to figure out which this could be. Leaning against the door, I had a moment to think, is it chained up? Before the last tink hit hard and loud, just on the other side of the door. 
Silence followed for a few seconds. I took in a breath to ask again if I could help it, but never had a chance to get the words out. Through the sliver of an opening in the door, I caught the sight of a brown blur before it connected with my chin and sent me flying. I landed on Sierra's vanity, the mirror shattering, showering me with shards of glass. I felt the heat from an open wound stinging my neck as the glass sliced into me. But I sat up, prepared to face whatever it was. I saw nothing. Heard nothing but the remaining hanging pieces of glass clamoring onto the floor and the buzzing in my ears magnified by the blow. I stared into the darkness, watching for another attack, but also to figure out who the hell it was. My vision was blurry at first, but as my head rebounded, I saw a hand, pale, obscure, and gripping something. It vanished into Sierra's hanging clothes before I could see anything else. I'm sorry. It was a male voice, sharp and plain as if he didn't mean it. The last word hung in the air, building a thickness to it that was tense and ready to break. It kept building, but once the voice was gone, all sound stopped. The fans and AC units stopped. Even the TV went off. I heard my sister walking down the hall to see what happened, awakened from the clamor. She turned in the doorway and the thickness snapped. The hell? Move! She screamed, but hit the floor. A shovel hurled from the closet straight toward her head, but missed and dug into the wall beside her. The handle of it wobbled back and forth from the force. Outside! Now! I pulled her up and was moving before she could get her feet beneath her. Our feet pummeled the floor as the whole house attacked us. Hanging picture frames flung themselves at us. Books, DVD cases, and the stereo system all lunged forward. We dodged the TV as we threw the front door open and ran out into the summer sunlight. My vision blurred again, but I looked at Sierra to make sure she was okay. I'm sorry. I thought it would just go after me. Are you okay? She reached up to touch my face, where I could feel a bruise blossoming. As she did, her long sleeve fell back and revealed a bruise. What the hell, Sierra? I grabbed her wrist. She showed me the rest of the marks on her arm and lower back where the poltergeist had been hurting her the past week. Tony's shovel? Did you really bring that damned thing into our house? I salted it and scorched it, I swear! You know that doesn't always work. Mom's gonna kill you if Tony doesn't first. And that's when she spilled the beans, taking breaths between snotty sobs to relay what had happened. She and her group of idiot friends decided to go to the Miller's farm and dick with the haunt there. The Miller's Farm was one of the newer haunts. Everyone knew the story personally, knew the people involved. At least, our parents and grandparents did. Claude and Betty Miller had been murdered by their son, Tony, who then hanged himself in the barn. My parents went to school with Tony. He was the star quarterback for the high school team, had signed with the University of Arkansas with a full scholarship. The murder-suicide shook the town. Fast forward to my sister and a group of miscreants. They snuck out over the weekend and went to the farm. They went into the barn, etched their initials into the rafter Tony hung himself from, and took pieces of whatever trinket-looking trash they could find small enough to carry home with them. Of course, it would be my sister brazen enough to grab the shovel he killed his parents with. Why was the shovel there and not in an evidence locker? 
because the sheriff was tired of the paranormal activity at his office. He brought it back to the farm where it belonged. Sierra, of course, didn't tell us any of this up front. She didn't even tell us when it started hurting her. Nope. She waited until it almost killed us. We called Mom. She was halfway through her shift at the hospital and wasn't happy about our news. You'd think you'd have the decency to wait until after dark to pull this shit. Tell your dad to pick up more sage to cleanse the house and take Sierra to put the shovel back. Dad was pissed when we called. He insisted on going with us to put the shovel back and called the sheriff's department to let them know why we were there. Dad got the names of Sierra's friends to check on them and tell their parents if they didn't already have a visit from Tony. Sierra salted and scorched the shovel again. 50-50 chance that would end it. We were good the rest of the weekend, but early Monday morning I woke to hear a thud up against my bedroom wall. <gasps> the one shared with Sierra's room and a scream that was cut off abruptly. I ran in there to see her hanging from a ceiling fan. Sierra? One of her belts suspended from a fan blade, hanging from her neck. Her eyes were bloodshot and bulging, face red and taut. Thankfully, the fan couldn't hold her weight anymore and collapsed. Her parents came in after me. Seeing my sister, my mother was dead set on the next course of action. That's it. We're calling Brother Hank. I'm not sure what I expected Amy to look like, but it sure wasn't the small, timid girl entering my living room with Brother Hank a few days later. She wore a long-sleeved blue dress with a white collar and nothing special about it. Her face was blank, like a computer waiting for input, something to react to. My mother was the first to shake hands with Brother Hank. Thank you so much for coming. No trouble at all. Brother had a manly voice, kind, but his tone would heighten on some words like a pubescent schoolboy. We are here to do the good Lord's work of ridding evil from this world. I took my eyes off of Amy to look at Brother Hank. Evil? It's a human spirit. Just mad because his resting place was disturbed. Brother Hank smiled like he knew something I didn't. No, dear boy. All people go to heaven or hell. These haunts that make our old town famous are the devil's minions disguising themselves to seduce us into their trap. We must not waver in our faith. The devil is closer to us than you know. I caught Amy smiling. We must do the good Lord's work. I am not afraid of being the light in the darkness. Her smile was sincere, but didn't reach her eyes. Was she getting tired of expelling spirits? She turned to my parents. You say the spirit randomly attacks? Her voice sounded more mature than a 13-year-old girl's. I wondered if she ever got to play or have fun. I mean, Brother Hank didn't seem cultish, but something told me the kind, persuasive voice of his stopped when he walked through his front door in the evenings. My father nodded at Amy. That's right, but it's centered in Sierra's room. We locked it up and placed crosses and salt around as much of its borders as we could. 
and it does nothing to stop it. Its reach outside the room has lessened, but... Crashing down the hallway interrupted my father. It sounded like my sister's bed was being thrown against the wall. The end table we used in the hallway flung itself across the living room to the wall behind us, barely missing Amy. She stepped out of the way like nothing was happening. The small table crashed to the floor, but it was in one piece. The couch and recliner vibrated, the feet knocking against the wooden floor. Yesterday, Tony could only reach the hallway. It seemed he was gaining a little power back. I wondered why. If Amy didn't reach him, I was going to check the salt lines. Amy smiled then. This time, it reached her eyes. I wished it hadn't. It was like looking into the abyss. She seemed so innocent it hurt, as if the Holy Spirit was within her and I was unworthy. Shall we? I watched my parents wonder about the child they just welcomed into their home. Her maturity caught them off guard, too. I wanted to tell them right then that Amy was a bad idea, but Sierra, who'd been standing quietly beside me, ran up to hug Amy. Her move surprised everyone, including Amy. I was glad to see something could catch her off guard. Thank you. Thank you so much. My sister's voice muffled because her face was buried in Amy's neck. It took Amy a second to react. She finally lifted her forearms to embrace my sister. Anything to help. Can you show me your room? The crashing in Sierra's room continued as we crept down the hall. It continued until the moment Amy turned to face the door. Once Amy gave all her attention to the entrance, all the activity stopped. It was the quietest it had been in a few days. Not only watching, but feeling it happen was the most amazing thing I had ever experienced. In that moment, at least. It's time, Brother Hank. Hank bobbed his head in compliance. Yes, Amy needs space in order to rid the demon. We need to wait outside. Hank put his arm around my sister and a hand on my mother's back to usher us out of the house. I paused at the door, and the hair on my arm stood up. I turned my head back to Amy. She stared at me with that unsettling smile of hers. Don't worry, Michael. What I do to Tony doesn't hurt. She smiled so big, her teeth flashed, but it just made me more uneasy. Made me feel... ashamed... Ashamed of what, I had no clue, but it made me want out of there. All my self-doubt washed over me the longer I looked at Amy. I tried to shake my head to stop thinking so oppressively, but couldn't. Wanting away from her, I quickly shut the door behind me and went to stand with the rest of the family. The sun set as we stood outside. It had only been a few minutes, but my 16-year-old invincibility was back, and I was impatient. I wanted to see how she did it. Why being around her made me feel dreadful. It just took a minute for me to figure out a story. I smiled at my devious plan. I threw an irritated face on for my mother. Ugh. Can I at least go work on my bike while we wait? 
My bike sat in the detached garage beside the house, out of their line of vision. As soon as my mom said yes, I started walking away, trying not to run, trying not to show my enthusiasm of trying to get there before Amy did whatever she was going to do. The leaves crunched beneath my feet as I whipped around the corner of the house. I grabbed my bike out of the garage. Mom would think it was weird if she didn't hear me open the door. That door croaked louder than my dad's snored, so she would know. I retrieved my bike, flipped it upside down as if I was taking a tire off, then crept over to the window I knew, looked into my sister's room. I looked at the salt line on the ground, careful not to cross or disturb it. The crosses dad hung over the windows obscured my vision, but I saw her. She stared at the closet unmoving. Amy never took her eyes off the closet, moved, or said anything. I tried to lean in just a little closer to see if she was looking at something I couldn't see when my foot slipped and I hit the salt. I looked down and, to my horror, the line had been broken. Shit. I looked up. I had a moment of seeing Amy, no longer facing the closet, but at me. Before I could be startled by her quick movement, another figure popped in front of my eyes. (gasps) Tony. His hair and face, covered in his parents' blood, were inches away from my own. His blue eyes were glossed over, bloodshot and purple from the hanging. So close I almost went cross-eyed staring at him. I'm sorry. This time, it sounded like the words were wrong. His tone of voice pleaded, as if begging, don't do this to me. I feared he would lash out again. But before he or I could do anything, I heard a huge gasp for air. Something sucked Tony away from me back into the house, fading away until I could see only Amy. Amy. That was it. She ate the ghosts to get rid of them. I stepped up to the window, no longer fearing Tony. After Amy finished devouring him, her body slumped but stayed standing by the closet, as if she were a marionette puppet held up by her strings. I stared until my eyes burned. Didn't want to miss what happened next, but I finally had to blink. I opened my eyes to see Amy just on the other side of the glass, not six inches from me. She rubbed her eyes as if waking up. Do you live here? I was so stunned, all I could do was nod my head. She yawned and stretched, her joints cracking way more than they should for a 13-year-old girl. That's when I saw it. A crease in her arm that shouldn't have been there. Something pushed outwards from beneath her skin, but was gone in an instant. So quickly, I wasn't sure I saw it. Well, you're safe now. Then she just walked out of the bedroom. I was dumbfounded. I stood there for a moment before I realized I needed to get back to my bike before she reached them. I couldn't help but wonder, was that Tony I saw crawling beneath her skin? Brother Hank went in to make sure Amy had done her job. When he came out, 
My parents were so relieved. Thank you so much. Both of you. Then Mom turned to Amy. You are so brave in the face of evil. Why don't you two join us for dinner? Brother Hank smiled. Oh, we would love to, Carol, but we can't. We have to get home before full dark. Full dark. The sun had been gone for a while, but its orange rays still filled the sky, throwing purple into the coming black of night. Why full dark, though? Why didn't he just say a time? I didn't want to ask him because I didn't want to raise suspicion. I let Brother Hank shake my parents' hands without saying anything to him. I let my parents distract him as I got closer to Amy. I forced myself to swallow the anxiety that came from meeting her gaze. I even managed to smile for her. A real one. I was thankful she got rid of Tony, just a little sad of how she had to do it. Thanks for saving us. She looked bashful, almost embarrassed, but back to normal and knew who I was. It's no problem. I'm just glad I could help. Yeah, thanks again. Sierra grabbed my hand, but didn't make to hug or shake hands with Amy. I waited until they pulled out of the drive to ask Sierra why. When I hugged her, it felt really weird. It didn't feel like I was hugging a girl. It felt like I was hugging a tree and cold. She was really cold. I resolved then to get to the bottom of this. So, like any 16-year-old boy with a goal, I snuck out of the house around midnight and walked the 10 blocks to the Weaver's house. They had a simple pea-green bungalow beside the church. The light was still on. Looked like the kitchen or the living room. I crept up to the side of the house and ducked in the bushes. Their house was visible from the side street, so I had to be wary of coming cars. The shrubs rustled a little with my movement, but I stayed still for a while after that. I could hear Sister Rhonda and Brother Hank both praying, though they weren't citing any Bible scripture I'd heard before. I didn't want to listen to them all night, but I needed to wait for them to go to bed so I could see which room was theirs and which was Amy's. I was saved from listening to more praying when I heard Amy's voice. I'm ready for my room now, Brother Hank. I found it weird she still called him brother at home, but shook it off. His heavy footsteps trailed down the hallway. I followed as closely as I could until I saw the light come on in another room. I noticed something was wrong immediately. Even with the curtain drawn, I could see there was a circle on her window. It had a triangle and some other shapes in the middle. I lurched forward at a snail's pace, forever moving closer, but slow enough to go unnoticed. He washed three times. Yes, sir. Your crucifix. Securely here, sir. And your salt and symbols. Drawn expertly, sir. Would you like me to pray with you? Yes, sir. They began to pray. The same prayer he and Sister Rhonda had been reciting. Something about 
strength and fortitude from our Lord of Light. I never heard God or Jesus referred to like that. But then I hear Amy's bed squeak as if she just laid down on it. Hank's shadow leaned over to kiss her goodnight. Let the Lord be with you, Amy. Remember, if you need out, I cannot let you out until after 3.33. Whatever you hear, do not let it torment you. I am stronger than these demons. Once at the window cell, I noticed there were more symbols on the walls etched in chalk. This poor girl needed so much protection. Why? What were they trying to keep out? Brother Hank left. I heard him lock the door. I wondered how many more symbols were sketched on her doors, walls, and ceiling. The room light clicked off, but there was still a dim glow, like a lamplight. I definitely didn't blame Amy for being afraid of the dark. Crouched there, I wondered if I should go through with it. After all the symbols and prayers they gave her, I didn't want to disturb them, or her. But something just didn't sit right, and I had to know what. I expected Amy to be lying on the bed, giving me some time to look around and think how I was going to do this. Any chance of that was gone as soon as I peered my eyes into the room. <gasps> Amy stood facing the window and locked eyes with me. Why wasn't her shadow cast through the window? She had no shadow. I gulped some fear down as I stared at her. I remembered what looking into her eyes did to me, so I avoided locking onto her gaze. So, you think you figured it out? Only, it wasn't her voice. If I hadn't just watched her mouth move with the words, I would say this voice belonged to an old crone with the flu. Way too raspy and decrepit for a young girl. I had no audible response other than an unintelligible stutter. I wondered if it was Tony speaking, but it didn't sound like his voice either. It might have been a combination of both of them, though. Three questions, that's it. But you have to give me something in return. That snapped me out of my stupor. W uh, what do you want? I unlocked the window and you left it. I am... Unable to. Dear. Something told me this simple request wasn't so simple, but I had to know. Okay, but only after the first question. Amy stalked toward the window, almost as if it hurt her to do so. Dear, what's the first question? What's your true connection to the Weavers? Amy unlocked the window with a metal hanger. I am Hank's granddaughter. My mother ran off with what Hank called unsavory heathens. She raised an eyebrow at me, waiting. She didn't give me the background description I was looking for, but it was still something. I jimmied the window until I was able to open it, careful not to make a sound. I slid it slowly. All the while, Amy just stared at me, expressionless. She climbed through the window before I had it halfway open. It surprised me she could slither through the gap, 
but she did it with grace, just like a cat playing around. As she crawled, I thought I heard her joints cracking, but it sounded off. She was so quiet landing onto the grass. If I hadn't been watching, I wouldn't have known she was there, but there she was, standing beside me looking up at the sky. I wasted my second question. I couldn't help it. You're never out alone, are you? She answered without looking at me. Brother Hank is very protective of me. I've never been out after dark for as long as I can remember. I see why now. So much for me to do. I looked up to where she must have been looking. The stars were out and a crescent moon hung over us. I guessed if she had never been out after dark, she never got a good view of the sky. You see, the deal with Hank is that he promised to keep me safe, which meant keeping me inside and protected after midnight until the morning. He's paying for the sins of my mother. He thinks he can atone for her through me. (laughs) But that's a lie, too. He likes the attention. He thinks we're doing good. He refuses to accept the truth. She doubled over, her bones cracking. But she stifled her screams. Through gritted teeth, she warned me. He's coming early. Without the symbols, he comes when he wants. But I had to see it. I had to see the night sky. Her shoulders snapped back, but her torso stayed hunched over, bones groaning from the movement. There was no way the Holy Ghost would do this to her, would it? I kneeled beside her, holding her through her convulsions. Let's get you back inside, then. He's almost there! Who? Who were you trying to keep out? Her body went rigid beneath my hands, hard and heavy. Like Sierra said she had when they hugged. She looked up at me, forcing me to meet her eyes. They were obsidian, empty, and promised nothingness. She smiled and I was struck cold. My ears started to ring so loud I could barely make out her next words. Words that came not from her voice or a mix of her and Tony's. It was a new voice, deeper and darker. Oh, Michael, the symbols were not for keeping things out. They were for keeping me in. I dropped her body to the ground and backpedaled away from her. It wasn't Amy anymore. Whoever it was wore Amy like a suit. It laughed. A low cackle Amy shouldn't have been able to make. Poor Brother Hank has been undone by a naive little boy. I pulled my salt and crucifix out. We'd been wrong. We had been so wrong. The weavers thought she was a gift from God, but she was far from it. Was she born this way or possessed? The Lord is my shepherd. I started reciting Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. It just stood there, smiling. And just what do you think you're going to accomplish? To expel you from Amy. 
For the first time, her face wasn't blank or smiling. It held confusion. You don't fear for your own life. I could crush you in seconds. That thought hadn't crossed my mind until then. I tried to stay strong. You're corrupting an innocent life. You're fooling the weavers into thinking you're an angel from heaven. <laughs> oh. oh my. He is dreadfully naive. No wonder Amy likes you. She walked across the yard towards the street. Thanks for releasing me. I really need some fun. Had I unleashed a demon onto Magazine? Had Hank summoned this thing? Did he know what he was really summoning? I watched as it walked toward the ditch to cross the road, having no power to stop it, but I had to try something. I took two steps forward, planning to tackle it, but it hit the edge of the yard as if it ran into a wall, stumbling back a bit. The demon tried again, but reached the end and couldn't move forward. It knelt down and ran its hands over the grass. It reached a patch in front of it and pulled its hand back as if it stung. Well, I underestimated good old Hank. It seems you may come in handy after all. It stood up and turned to me. Why don't you be a good boy and dig up the items holding me here? If you do, I won't crack your head open. Even though it wasn't her voice, hearing such violent words spill from Amy's lips stung me. I shook from the fear. God, I was so scared it would end me right there, but it needed me. You can do whatever you want to me if you... Let her go. <laughs> How about a compromise, hmm? I'll leave Amy's body if you let me go. Will Amy be okay if you leave her body? The demon looked bored with me. You still don't get it, do you? You've lived here a long time. You know how things work. Think about it. Why would I be here? Why would I be in this particular body? I didn't like the demon regurgitating my own thoughts at me. I didn't want to face the truth. Hank's daughter was a witch of some sort? Or a Satanist? Wasn't she? Or was it... Hank. Of course it was. He found one of Amy's mother's books of summons and saw me and my purpose. He thought my wants aligned with his, and they did for a time, but I'm done being his toy. It came closer to me, rolling the long sleeves of Amy's gown to reveal the symbols tattooed all over her arms, stopping with a circle at both wrists. Break these symbols and I leave Amy's body. Dig up the items, and I leave you and Amy alone. What about the rest of the town? It was growing impatient. 
This town is a plethora of souls, like fish in a barrel for me. But since you are cooperating so nicely, I'll leave not only you and your family alone. I'll leave the town alone as long as you live. I must warn you, though. Amy won't be happy you're doing this. You'll need to prepare yourself for her wrath. The screaming and crying of a 13-year-old girl would be worth her safety. We could always figure out a way to exercise the demon later. My priority was ridding Amy of the evil inside her and keeping myself alive. How do I break the circles? Cut, dear boy. Cut. Just a break of the skin. Enough to draw blood. If it's that simple, why haven't you done it yet? It has to be a man of faith. Even Hank can't break these seals anymore. I think it won't be a problem for you. Never thought I would be complimented by a demon on my faith. I pulled out my pocket knife and flipped it open. How do I know you won't just kill us all? You don't. But isn't she worth the gamble? I barely knew her. She was young, fragile and broken, kept together by Hank's twisted morality which left her fractured. But that was enough for me to want to save her. That and the threat on my life. I flicked the knife across both wrists. Watched as Amy's blood ran down her hands. A shadow fell over her then, darted off. It struck whatever barrier was keeping it here. It hissed and shrieked, waiting for me to free it. Amy dropped to the ground, unconscious but breathing. Careful of the demon's ambient shape, I knelt beneath it and cut into the earth shearing away with my knife and then dug with my hands until I hit something hard. It was a wooden bomb. I threw my knife off to the side and used my hands to dig wider. As I found two corners, I heard Brother Hank throw the front door open. He charged my way to stop me, but the demon got to him first. Brother Hank started a prayer but was cut off abruptly. I looked away when I saw Hank begin to levitate. I turned back to digging while hearing the crunch and cracking of his body. The splash of way too much blood staining the grass. He screamed once, hard but short, as the demon contorted him so badly his body looked like a heap of meat as it thudded on the ground. I didn't dare look directly at him, but the demon tossed him into my periphery. Did the demon do that to remind me just what it could do to me? I dug faster. Sister Rhonda stepped onto the porch. I heard her scream at the sight of her husband. She ran back in and sobbed into her phone as she called for help. But I didn't hear Amy. I didn't understand it at first, but then I felt something poking into my ribs. I didn't feel the pain, only the wet warmth of my own blood. And then I couldn't breathe. I hyperventilated, trying to pump air into my lungs, but even that was cut short by my own blood. My vision blurred as I fell over and faced the sky. Amy stood over me, my pocket knife in hand. I'm sorry, Michael. 
please forgive me. This is the only way. I was born to keep this demon caged. I know you meant to save me, but there is no salvation for me in this world. This is my fate. I'm sorry this had to be yours, but I couldn't let you dig that box up. She started speaking Latin, or in tongues. I couldn't really tell. I blinked hard as I tried to beg her for help. I choked on my blood as Amy threw dirt back over the box, while reciting whatever prayer or spell kept the demon from attacking her. Once finished, she lifted her arms toward the shadowy figure. It crawled over her skin and absorbed back into her. She doubled over as her body cracked again. When she stood up, she was the demon once more. I told you she wouldn't be happy with you. I was so close. Oh well. One day she'll come for you. And I'll have the chance to show you just what it is I do. I was cold. So cold. My body convulsed and my vision started to go. The last thing I saw was Amy turning around and going into the house. When I woke up, I could breathe. My clothes weren't stained with blood, and I managed to get to my feet. Once on my feet, though, I looked down and saw myself. Bloody, white and rigid. I was dead. I was worse than dead. I was stuck. Heaven nor hell called to me. After getting over the shock of seeing my own dead body, I looked around and saw the truth for the first time. My hometown of Magazine crawled with the dead. They moved through the streets in crowds of shadows, or over the trees. We didn't have this many haunts scaring the townspeople, yet here they were. I understood what my town was then. It was a trap. A trap for anyone who died here. I saw Brother Hank. He didn't say anything to me, just shook his head as he looked towards his house. I could see the demon for what it truly was, not just Amy. It was the most horrifying thing I had ever experienced. It stood there, looking at Hank. It opened its massive jaws and inhaled sharply, sucking Brother Hank towards him. Hank had no chance. He disappeared into the demon's mouth. It clamped down on him and then continued back into the house, but not before imparting some knowledge onto me. You'll be my last one, Michael. You'll get to see all the good Amy does before it's your turn. It turned its back to me and went in. I turned toward the road, at all the spirits roaming, and wondered just how long it would take Amy to rid magazine of all its spirits including me.
The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.